This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Bravado by William Trevor, which was published in The New Yorker in January of 2007. The first time she'd been in the star, the first time she'd seen Manning, no more than a face in the crowd, she had admired him. He'd noticed her interest, he told her afterward. He said she was his kind, and she didn't hesitate when he asked her to go out with him. The story was chosen by Elizabeth Strout, whose most recent book, Olive Again, an Oprah's book club pick, was published in 2019. Hi, Liz. Hi, Deborah. How are you? (laughs) Good. Um, Thank you for doing this in in pandemic times. It's my pleasure. It really is. So what made you want to talk about a story by William Trevor today? Has has he been important to you as a writer or a reader? Both. I think William Trevor is just such a wonderful writer. And I discovered him years and years ago through The New Yorker, um, I might add. And I have always loved his work. There's a gentleness to it. There's a subtlety to it. He's sort of inimitable in my estimation. He's got his own thing going on, which is just really, really lovely for me. In a sense, he's a bit of a regionalist. His stories are not all, but mostly set in Ireland. There are some in England. And I guess I see maybe an affinity between Trevor's Ireland and, and your Maine. Well, that's interesting. I suppose that's completely possible. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought of that. But yes, <laughs> I mean, he does write about cities once in a while. But there is a sense of, you know, the smaller town or, or village and what goes on there, which is what I'm always interested in my own work as well. Yeah. How would you describe the typical uh, William Trevor story? Yeah, you know, I think I would describe it as going into just the quietness of ordinary lives and all that happens within ordinary lives, because most of us are ordinary, and the interiority of his characters are so well rendered. And that's what I take away from him. All of this, as I said, very gently, quietly told. It's interesting that at the center of this story that you're reading, Bravado, um, there's a very not quiet event, which triggers some not quiet results in right. a way. Right, that's true. And yet I think in a way, even though that is the thing the story turns on, I think it would be almost a mistake to think that that was what the story was about. Mm-hmm. It's interestingly structured in that there's a buildup to a violent event, which might, in another writer's hands, be the climax of the story. But right. in fact, the climax is maybe the aftermath. Right. That's exactly how I was feeling about it. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk some more after the story. And now here's Elizabeth Stroud reading Bravado by William Trevor. Bravado. The leaves had begun to fall. All along Sunderland Avenue, on the pavement beneath the beech trees, there was a sprinkling. Not yet the mushy inconvenience they would become when more fell and rain came, which inevitably would be soon. Not many people were about. It was after midnight, almost one o'clock, the widely spaced lampposts casting pools of misty yellow illumination. A man walked his dog in Blenning Road in the same blotchy lamplight, the first of autumn's leaves gathering there also. An upstairs window opened in Verdon Crescent, hands clapped to dismiss a cat rooting in a flower bed. A car turned into Sunderland Avenue, 
its headlights dimmed and then extinguished, its alarm set for the night with a flurry of flashing orange and red. The traffic of the city was a hum that only faintly reached these leisurely streets, the occasional distant shriek of a police siren or an ambulance more urgently disturbing their peace. Less than half a mile away, the night was different. Young people prowled about outside the Star nightclub, its band, Big City, taking a break. A late shop was still open, a watchful Indian at the door noting who came and went. A few cars drew away, but more remained. Then, with a thump of such suddenness that for a moment it might have been taken for a warning of emergency or disaster, music again burst from the Star nightclub. By half-past one, this neighborhood, too, had quieted. The bouncers at the Star drove off. Couples made their way to the dark seclusion of the nearby canal bank. Others stood about, groups forming and dispersing. Locking up his shop, the Indian was argued with and abused when demands for alcohol and potato crisps were refused. The last of the parked cars were driven off. Two youths, who were friends, went together, undaunted by the prospect of an hour's walk to where they lived. One was in shirt sleeves, although it was chilly, the arms of a red anorak tied around his shoulders. The other wore a black woolen jersey above ragged jeans. They talked about the girls they had come across on the dance floor, one in particular, well known to them both, the other's strangers. They talked about their intentions for the future, in the merchant navy and in car sales, in uncle's business. These were the changes that were soon to come about, when education ended, when so much they had known for so long was to be left behind forever. The brothers and the lay teachers, the cramped desks scratched with entwined initials and hearts and arrows, all they had learned of self-preservation and of survival's cunning. There was, in their conversation, an absence of regret. They paused in their walk while the anorak was unknotted and put on and zipped. Their evening out had been a good one, they agreed, while this was being done. Kicking, one said. Big city can do it. They walked on, talking about that band's touch of genius. With his mobile telephone close to his mouth, the Indian loudly demanded the police, his usual ploy at this hour speaking to no one. His tormentors swore at him, then tired of their invective and went away. Five there were, two of them girls, neither of whom had taken part in the abuse, which had surprised him, for girls were often the worst. He kept an eye on the five when they moved off in a bunch, causing an oncoming car to slow to a crawl as they crossed the street. Then he locked his shop, thankful that there hadn't been an incident. "'How you doing?' Manning shouted at the driver of the car. He drummed on the bonnet with his fists, and joining in his companions, but not the girls.' did the same. The car kept moving, then stopped and reversed. It went another way. Can you beat that? Manning laughed, watching the car from the middle of the road. He was tallest of the bunch, his reddish hair falling over his forehead in a floppy shock that he was said to be proud of. An air of insouciance distinguished his manner, was there again in the lazy saunter of his walk, in his smile. Manning led when he was with Donovan and Kilroy, which he was most of the time, and was tonight. Ashleen was his girl, fair-haired and pretty, with expressive blue eyes, younger than Manning by more than a year. The second girl wasn't known to the others. Earlier she had asked which way they were going, and then if she could go with them, 
because she lived in that direction. Francie, she was called. Ashlyn clung to Manning as they walked. With his arm around Francie, Kilroy tried to slow her down in the hope of setting up an opportunity for something when they had fallen far enough behind. But Francie kept up a steady pace. She was small, often called a little thing, but deliberate and determined in her manner. She, too, was pretty, but less dramatically so than Ashling, whom Manning liked to describe as drop-dead gorgeous. She denied that she was, but Manning's regular repetition of the compliment did not displease her. She listened to him now, saying he didn't intend to set foot in the star again, objecting to the way the shaven-head bouncers had frisked him for miniatures. They had taken one from him and afterwards said they hadn't. They thought they owed you louts like that. Did you ever do a line, cowboy, he called across Ashling to Donovan. And I do a line with Josie Flynn? You idiot. Laughing again, Manning sounded drunk, Ashling thought. Not very, but a little. She'd been drunk once or twice before, but hadn't liked it, everything slipping about and the way you felt in the morning. Did you ever, though? Manning pressed, offering Donovan a cigarette. Donovan said he had, of course, many a time, and Ashling knew all this was for her and for the girl who tagged along, whose name she had forgotten. Awesome, Donovan said, he and Manning lighting their cigarettes, sharing the match. No one else was a smoker. They were going by the dye works now, where Manning had once climbed over the high, spiked railings. That had been for Ashling, too, and a girl called Maura Bannerman. The security lights had been triggered, and through the railings they had watched Manning roaming about, from time to time peering in at the downstairs windows of the lumpy red brick building that was said to have been a lunatic asylum once. Behind her, Ashling heard Kilroy telling the girl he had monopolized about that night. At the top of the railings, razor wire was woven through the spikes, he said, adding to the hazards. None of them knew how Manning had done it, especially since he was a bit drunk then, too. Kilroy had slit eyes that aptly suggested an untrustworthy nature. Donovan was considered to be dense. Almost as tall as Manning, he was bulkier, clumsy in his movements, slow of speech. Kilroy had a stunted appearance, accentuated by oiled black hair sleekly brushed straight back, making the top of his head seem flat. Ashling didn't much like either of them. The first time she'd been in the star, the first time she'd seen Manning, no more than a face in the crowd, she had admired him. He'd noticed her interest, he told her afterward. He said she was his kind, and she didn't hesitate when he asked her to go out with him. Mano, he was called in the Dublin manor. Martin was what his family called him, and Ashling thought of him as that when she was in her convent classroom and every night before she went to sleep. She and he were an item, he said, which Ashling had never been with anyone before. I'd give a thousand bucks for a snort, he was saying now, his voice slightly raised, a laugh in it again. Where'd we get ourselves a snort, cowboy? Donovan said maybe Dirty Doyle's. Kilroy suggested Capel Street. It was a kind of play, Ashling knew. Martin Manning doing the big fellow, her father would have said. She had become used to it ages ago. They reached the quiet streets, St. Stephen's Church at the corner of Goodchild Street, the shadowy sprawl of trees on either side of Sunderland Avenue ahead of them. Who are those geeks? Donovan suddenly exclaimed, and they all stopped, not knowing at first where to look. When he pointed, they saw the red anorak. 
It's bloody Delgetti, Manning said. The two parted in Sunderland Avenue, Dalgetty turning into Blenning Road. On his own, he went a little faster, but paused when he noticed that one of the garden gates he was passing was invitingly open. He went through it and crossed a lawn to a corner near the house where he couldn't be seen from the windows. He urinated in the shadow of an Eliagnus bush. Making their way from the nightclub, they had once or twice been aware of voices behind them, but engrossed in conversation themselves hadn't looked round to see whose they were. Dalgetty couldn't hear the voices now and imagined that whoever they belonged to had gone in some other direction. A light hadn't come on in the house, which sometimes happened when you found a garden that was convenient for the purpose he had used it for. He unzipped his anorak because he'd noticed that the teeth of the zip hadn't been properly aligned. While he was zipping it up again, he was struck, a blow on the right side of his head. He thought that someone had come out of the house and was thinking he hadn't heard the front door opening when the next blow came. He stumbled and fell, and a foot smashed into his jaw when he was lying on the grass. He tried to stand up, but couldn't. Ashley watched from the road. Francie looked away. In the garden, standing back at first, not taking part, Donovan moved forward when the boy was lying on the grass. Kilroy stayed with the girl. Nobody spoke while the assault was taking place, not in the garden, not on the road. Ashleen wondered what the boy had done, what insults had been exchanged in the star, or before that, how he had offended. Something of the headiness of the nightclub seemed to be there again, something of the music's energy, of the wildness that was often in a face as it went by on the dance floor before it was sucked into the suffocating closeness of the crowd. Still, nobody spoke when they all moved on in a bunch again. Oh, leave me be, Francie suddenly cried out. Just leave me, would you? She pulled herself away from Kilroy's grasp, fiercely taking exception to the attentions he had allowed before. Lay off me, will you? Behave yourself, cowboy. Manning's rebuke came lightly, and for a moment as he spoke, Ashlyn saw the white gleam of his teeth. He knew how best to intercede. He was good at that. She'd often noticed how in an instant he became serious when seriousness was called for. And she'd noticed how he didn't hesitate to do what he felt should be done. There would be a reason for what had happened. Kilroy muttered. He desisted for a few minutes before he tried again, and again was crossly rejected. In Charleston Road, Francie scuttled off, not saying good night. Hoity, Kilroy remarked. Ashling didn't think so. The girl who had asked if she might walk with them had been upset, taken by surprise when so suddenly the incident occurred. Knowing too little about the strangers she'd fallen in with, she hadn't been able to make allowances or sense that there would be a reason. Being pawed about by Kilroy might even have seemed too like the violence in the garden. You couldn't blame her if she'd felt frightened. Ashling would have herself. Dalgety's a pain, Manning said when she asked why Dalgety had been duffed up. Forget it, he said. I never heard that name before, Ashling said, Dalgetty. Yeah, a nerd's. Conversation lapsed then, but as they passed the entrance to the Green Banks Hotel, Donovan began on a story about his sister, how she was going to a shrink and hated it so much she often didn't turn up for her weekly sessions. A guy comes on heavy, Donovan said. You end up with a shrink. Nobody commented. Donovan did not go on. 
The interrupted silence held for a little longer, and the talk, when it began again, was different. So that was it, Ashling reflected, not saying anything herself. She felt relieved, aware of a relaxation in her body, as if her nerves had been strung up and no longer were. This Dalgetty had upset Donovan's sister, going too far when she didn't want him to, his persistence putting her in need of psychiatric care. And the anger Ashling had witnessed in the garden touched her, what had happened seeming different, less than it had while she had watched. See you, Mano, Donovan said. Cheers, Ashling. She said good night. Donovan turned into Cambridge Road, and soon after, Kilroy turned off too. Was he all right? Ashling asked then. Who's this? Dalgety. Christ, of course he was. They went to Spireview Lane, where they always went when it was as late as this. You're a dazzler tonight, Manning whispered, slipping his hands beneath her clothes. She closed her eyes, kissing him back, his early morning stubble harsh on her chin. The first time she had experienced that roughness, it had excited her, and every time since it had. I'd best be getting back, she said, not that she wanted to get back anywhere. A dog came sniffing at them, some kind of small breed, black or gray, you couldn't tell in the dark. Someone whistled for it, and it ran off. I'll walk you over, Manning said, which he always did when she had to go. He lit a cigarette, as he always did, too. The smoke would get into her clothes, and she'd be asked about it if there was anyone up, although usually nobody was. I looked back, Manning said. He was up on his feet. Bernadette rang, a note for her in the kitchen said, and Sister Teresa about knowing your part for Thursday. No one was still up or there wouldn't be the note. Ashleen made cocoa and had biscuits with it, sitting at the table with the Evening Herald, then pushing it away. She wished it hadn't happened, but thought about Hazel Donovan, and before she finished her cocoa, wondered if she really wished it. She might have slipped him, but she hadn't, and she remembered now not wanting to. The hard man, his friends said when they greeted him, knowing him well, as she did too, his daring, the way he took chances. Ah, come on, he had urged, the time he gave her a lift on the bar of his bicycle, when they were caught by her father coming toward them on a bicycle too, his veterinary bag hanging on the handlebars. Don't ever let me see the like of that again, her father stormed at her when she returned to the house. Being his favorite made being caught all the worse, her mother explained. Neither of them approved of Martin Manning. They didn't understand. She washed the mug she'd drunk her cocoa from at the sink and put the lid on the biscuit tin. She picked up Sister Teresa's type sheets and went upstairs. Scenes from Hamlet was Sister Teresa's title for the monologues she had put together, the first time she had attempted something that wasn't a conventional play. There's fennel for you, Ashlyn murmured, half asleep already, and columbines. At number six, Blenning Road, the elderly woman who had lived alone there since she was widowed seven months earlier was roused from a dream in which she was a child again. She went to the top of her stairs, leaned over the banister, and shouted in the direction of the hall door, asking who was there. But all that happened was the ringing of the doorbell again. It would take more than that, she told herself, to get her to open the door at this hour. When the bell ceased, there was a banging and a rapping and a voice coming from far away because she hadn't had time to put her hearing aid in. Even when the letterbox rattled and the voice was louder, she still couldn't hear a word of what was said. 
She went back to her bedroom for her hearing aid and then trudged down to the hall. What do you want? She shouted at the letter box. Fingers appeared, pressing the flap open. Excuse me, missus, excuse me, but there's someone lying in your garden. It's half past six in the morning. Could you phone up the guards, missus? In the hall, she shook her head, not answering that. She asked whereabouts in her garden the person was. Just lying there on the grass. I'd call them up myself, only my mobile's run out. She telephoned. No point in not, she thought. She was glad to be leaving this house, which for so long had been too big for two and was now ridiculously big for one. She had been glad before this, but now was more certain than ever that she had made the right decision. She thought so again while she watched from her dining room window a Garda car arriving and an ambulance soon after that. She opened her hall door then and saw a body taken away. A man came to speak to her, saying it was he who had talked to her through the letterbox. A guard told her the person they had found lying near the Eliagnus was dead. On the news, the address was not revealed. A front garden, it was reported, and gave the district. A milkman going by on his way to the depot had noticed. No more than that. When Ashleen came down at five past eight, they were talking about it in the kitchen. She knew at once. You all right, her mother asked, and she said she was. She went back to her bedroom, saying she had forgotten something. It was all there on the front page of the Evening Herald's early afternoon edition. No charges had been laid, but it was expected that they would be later in the day. The deceased had not been known to the householder in whose garden the body had been discovered, who was reported as saying she had not been roused by anything unusual in the night. The identity of the deceased had not yet been established, but a few details were given, little more than that a boy of about 16 had met his death following an assault. Witnesses were asked to come forward. Ashleen didn't. The girl who had tagged along did. The victim's companion on the walk from the Starnight Club gave the time they left it and the approximate time of their parting from one another. The nightclub bouncers were helpful, but could add little to what was already known. The girl who had come forward was detained for several hours at the Garda station, from which inquiries were being made. She was complimented on the clarity of her evidence and pressed to recall the names of the four people she had been with. But she had never known those names, only that the red-haired boy was called Mano and had himself addressed his two companions as cowboy. Arrests were made just before midnight. Ashleen read all that the next morning in the Irish Independent, which was the newspaper that came to the house. Later in the day, she read an almost identical account in the Irish Times, which she bought in a newsagent's where she wasn't known. Both reports referred to her, describing her as the second girl whom the Gardai were keen to locate. There was a photograph, a coat thrown over the head and shoulders of a figure being led away, a wrist handcuffed to that of a uniformed Garda. The second arrest at a house in Ranelagh told no more. No names were released at first. When they were, Ashley made a statement to the police, confessing that she was the second girl, and in doing so she became part of what had happened. People didn't attempt to talk to her about it, and at the convent it was forbidden that they should do so, but it was sometimes difficult, even for strangers, to constrain the curiosity that too often was evident in their features. When more time passed, there was the trial and then the verdict. 
Acquitted of murder, the two who had been apprehended were sent to jail for 11 years, their previous good conduct taken into account, together with the consideration, undenied by the court, that there was an accidental element in what had befallen them. Neither had known of their victim's frail, imperfect heart. Ashling's father did not repeat his castigation of her for making a friendship he had never liked. What had happened was too terrible for petty blame. Beneath an intolerant surface, he could draw on gentleness. We have to live with this, he said, as if accepting that the violence of the incident reached out for him, too, that guilt was indiscriminately scattered. For Ashleen, time passing was stranger than she had ever known days and nights to be before. Nothing was unaffected. In conveying the poetry of Shakespeare on the hastily assembled convent stage, she perfectly knew her lines, and the audience was kind. But there was pity in that applause, because she had unfairly suffered in the aftermath of the tragedy she had witnessed. She knew there was, and in the depths of her consciousness it felt like mockery, and she did not know why. A letter came, long afterward, flamboyant handwriting bringing back the excitement of surreptitious notes in the past. No claim was made on her, nor were there protestations of devotion, as once so often there had been. He would go away. He would bother no one. He was a different person now. A priest was being helpful. The letter was long enough for contrition, but still was short. Missing from its single page was what had been missing also during the trial, that the victim had been a nuisance to Donovan's sister. In the newspaper photograph, the same one many times, Dalgety was dark-haired, smiling only slightly, his features regular, almost nondescript except for a mole on his chin. And seeing it so often, Ashleen had each time imagined his unwanted advances pressed on Hazel Donovan and had read the innocence in those features as a lie. It was extraordinary that this, as the reason for the assault, had not been brought forward in the court, and more extraordinary that it wasn't touched upon in a letter where, with remorse and regret, it surely belonged. A guy comes on heavy, Donovan that night had said. There had been a lingering silence, and he broke it to mention this trouble in his family, as if he thought that someone should say something. The conversational tone of his voice seemed to indicate he would go on, but he didn't. Hungry for mercy, she too eagerly wove into his clumsy effort at distraction an identity he had not supplied, allowing it to be the truth, until time wore the deception out. After the convent, Ashleen acquired a qualification that led to a post in the General Office of Educational Publishers. She had come to like being alone, and often in the evenings went on her own to the cinema, and at weekends walked at Howth or by the sea at Dalkey. One afternoon she visited the grave, then went back often. A stone had been put there, its freshly incised words brief, the name, the dates. People came and went among the graves, but did not come to this one, although flowers were left there from time to time. In a bleak cemetery, Ashling begged forgiveness of the dead for the falsity she had embraced when what there was had been too ugly to accept. Silently, she had watched an act committed to impress her, to deserve her love as other acts had been. And watching, there was pleasure, if only for a moment, but still there had been. She might go away herself, 
and often thought she would, in the calm of another time and place to flee the shadows of bravado. Instead, she stayed, a different person, too, belonging where the thing had happened. That was Elizabeth Strout reading Bravado by William Trevor. The story appeared in The New Yorker in January of 2007 and was included in Trevor's collection Cheating at Canasta, which was published by Viking later that year. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Liz, the way the story opens, it's a somewhat pastoral vision of falling leaves and peaceful night streets. (laughs) Exactly, and it's so interesting because... He takes his time, as he always does, and yet he's unbelievably economic with his words. Just a few words in each sentence, and yet the details are always extraordinary, and that's why I think one can fall into his stories so quickly. You know, you've got the man walking his dog, you've got the clapping hands to dismiss the cat rooting in a flower bed, you've got the alarm going on, flashing its orange and red, and it's it's all right there in this very quiet part of a city or the neighborhood near a city. And then he goes, the very next paragraph, he says less than half a mile away. So it takes you right to where the action of the story actually begins with the, you know, the nightclub and its band. You know, you go with him where he goes because he has that quiet authority that any good writer should have, I think. Yeah. And that opening is where the action is going to take place. That's right, exactly. So we know, if you know Trevor at all, that it's certainly not gratuitous. We're going to be there. (laughs) We're coming back to that section of the town later. We're coming back, but maybe not to the people that we see there now. Right, right. But we will (laughs) enter that space again. For me, it's a very suspenseful first half of the story, and there's a sense of mounting threat or ominousness. How does he do that? There's a couple of ways he does it. You know, first he has the Indian man that he speaks of who is obviously used to being abused, as he says, with his demands for alcohol and potato crisps at the end of the night. And then the Mm -hmm. the man is on his phone pretending to call the police. So there's that sense of this might always be a problem. And then at one point, there's also this enormous crash. I mean, well, right in the second paragraph, it says, you know, there was a suddenness that for a moment it might have been taken as a warning of emergency or disaster, but it was just music again bursting from the nightclub. But the way it's presented is like, oh, emergency or disaster. So those different things are sort of building up to like, okay, this isn't such a good situation maybe to be in. He's kind of priming us for something. 
that there's an energy of violence. Yes, exactly. And then even Manning himself, when he's pounding on the bonnet of the car, or what we would call the hood of the car, you know, that backs up to just get away from him, you realize, okay, we know this scene. This is, you know, a man who's been drinking and at a nightclub and he's feeling, you know, his out, so to speak. He's got some energy to let, let out. <laughs> he does. Exactly. <laughs> it's been put into him from the music. I thought it was interesting that Trevor decided to call him Manning. I know. It's interesting. I thought so too. And Mano, and then, but his name is Martin. Yeah. There's a sense in which his name is a verb. You know, he's becoming a man, I guess. He's, he's still a teenager. I, I was struck with that as well. And then, you know, you've got the, the two different women, the young women, Ashley and whose father there, I think there's only two sentences in this story about her father. One is when he first sees her riding on the bicycle handles of Manning's bike, and, and he is coming the opposite direction on his bicycle with a veterinary bag hanging mm-hmm. over the bars. And that is such a great detail because you realize, okay, her father's a veterinarian, and he's got his veterinary bag you know, hanging over the bars. And it's just, it's just kind of perfect, that image, that one image of him, and he's upset with her. And then we only see him again after the event has taken place where he's gentle with her. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's very real to me, just in those two small observations of him. And through him, we have more of a sense of who Ashley is and what she comes from. And I thought yeah. it was very interesting that we don't see what Manning comes from because I don't think we need to. Mm-hmm. We can guess it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's something about Ashling's father. I mean, the first scene, he's, we see him, he's angry. He's angry at her. But it's the detail of him riding a bicycle to work with his bag hanging over the handlebars. Just It gives, gives us that sense of modesty. Modesty and also, you know, that he's, he's a man who takes care of animals. I don't know. I just felt like, oh, he's solid in a way, you know. Yeah. He, in a way, even though he gets angry at Ashling, you get the sense that he builds her up, that he says, you're worth more than this. You know, you're, right. you're better than this. She probably is, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> With Manning, you get the opposite sense that people are just always tearing him down. Right. Because why would he be this way otherwise? You know, he's been slightly taken advantage of by the bouncers at the club. They've taken his miniature liquor bottle and denied it. And you get the sense that he is talked down to just by the way Ashling's father responds to him. Exactly, exactly. It's an automatic reaction to him. So clearly something about him is visibly low class or uncouth. Right. Um, and she's drawn to him because she's a young woman and she's, you know, drawn to him. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty <laughs> understandable. You know, she just got mixed up with the wrong guy. But it's her first fellow and he makes her feel important in a way Tells that her, she's, her father she's probably gorgeous. makes her feel important too. So it's kind of an interesting dichotomy, you know, that her yeah. father who makes her feel important would lead her to a man who makes her feel important, but is quite the opposite of her father. Yeah. And we have this other girl there, Francie, who knows no one and no one knows. And in a sense, she's probably there as a plot device so there's someone who will go to the police at the end. That's exactly what I was going to say. (laughs) And yet she's a very real person. I mean, I can see her and I can hear her, you know, as she's trying to get away from Kilroy. Yeah. Kilroy, yeah. Because again, the details that he gives are just always so impeccably articulate. 
I mean, you know, Francie had, you know, she looked away at the assault. I thought that was an interesting detail that she looked away when it was happening. But Ashley had not looked away. And so you can see their difference right there. Yeah. And also Ashley's watching, you know, right, her, because it's her, her boyfriend. boyfriend. <laughs> so we know from the end of the story that Ashling acknowledges to herself at some point that she got pleasure out of watching this. Which um, I think is very honest of Trevor. It's an interesting choice to have him make that, I thought. Yeah. I mean, it's not pleasure at witnessing someone be hurt. No. Pleasure at her ego being fed because she understands that he was doing this to impress her, I think. Yeah. Though afterwards, when she's expressing concern about Dalgety... Manning has second thoughts. He lies about it. He says, I looked back and he was standing up. Why does he say that? It made perfect sense to me that somebody like Manning would say that. First of all, he probably hopes he is. <laughs> you know, I don't think Manning <laughs> meant to take his life. And so I think he's hoping he is. And he's also realizes that it might have been too much for Ashling to, to see that, you know. So he's just intuitively understanding, oh, I'm just going to pretend this didn't happen. Or, you know, that he was standing up. It's okay. Do you think that he suspects that the attack was worse than he thought it was? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. We we spend a lot of time in the story jumping from mind to mind. I mean, we open with that zooming, camera zooming in right. on the neighborhood. And we, we go into Ashling's mind. We go into Dalgety's mind. We even go into the old woman. I know. I was going to mention her because is. I thought that was so interesting how he just takes us right inside her house you know, she's the one whose lawn this occurred on, and she's this, you know, this sort of relatively new widow. She doesn't like being in the house. I mean, it's like we, we learned so much about her in just a short period of time, and she made perfect sense to me. I believed her completely. Yeah. And then they come knocking on her door, and um, that was interesting for me as well, that he can take on so many points of view. Well, why do you think he jumps around so much? I think because it's his way of telling a story. I think that yeah. he's interested in all the details. I mean, as you can see in the very first paragraph, he's interested in all the details of that section of town. He's therefore going to be interested in the characters. He's going to be interested in the house with the bush where the fellow has urinated, the person who lives in the house. I think he's just interested, and that's his method of telling a story, is to go around, move the camera around and dip it down in and then pull it back out. Yeah. Well, so then it's to me, it's notable that the aftermath um, of this event is all seen through Ashling. Right. And that it does become her story ultimately. And what I was saying before about, for me, what the story kind of came down to was that she, when she hears Donovan, who says, oh, my sister had mm -hmm. to go to a shrink. And, you know, some guy comes on heavy and you end up with a shrink. And she hears that as the reason that Manning did this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she keeps up with that sense of it being the reason until she realizes gradually that, you know, it never came out in the trial, it never came out in the newspaper. And so she has to accept that's not why he did it. He did it indiscriminately and he did it to impress me. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, is what the story is about, her coming to terms with that. It's not so much about the poor dead fellow or even Manning. It's about Ashleen realizing, oh, it was what it was, which is just something 
to impress me, bravado. Mm-hmm. And and that gives her a sense of, of culpability or complicity. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, at the time she had nothing to do with this. She was just there. <laughs> um, That's exactly right. But she takes it on as her fault. Exactly. And so, you know, she goes to the graveyard at the end. And I just find the last paragraph so interesting because, you know, she might go away herself, but then instead she stayed a different person too, belonging where the thing had happened. So this is her, you know, this is obviously something that will be a definable, clearly, you know, it would be for anybody, but this is her moment of definition in a certain way as, as a person. Right. It's a diminishing moment, right? Because she's gone from being this popular, beautiful lively girl who would you know do Shakespeare on the stage and then she hears the mockery and the applause which obviously isn't there there's pity which she interprets as mockery that's right and I thought that was really interesting you can tell that this is when she's beginning to feel culpable so she can't take the pity she won't accept it right she feels responsible do you think that she does belong you know where it happened I mean is there is there justice in I think it's just who she is. I mean, I think this story could have gone many different ways if it had been about a different person, you know, because I don't personally find her culpable. And a different person might move past it and say, well, you know, that's terrible. It happened. Obviously, Manning's going to be okay. You know, 11 years, he'll be out. He's got a priest. Or he might not be okay, whatever. But she, being her, really does end up taking this very, very deeply to heart and feeling very culpable and that's her story, and therefore that's this story. And we know that she's Catholic. We know she goes to a convent school. We know she probably takes notions of sin and guilt and so on quite seriously. Yeah. And even in spite of her father being kind and saying, we'll just learn to live with this, which in fact she is doing. She is learning to live with it, but she can't let go of it. Right. It's become her life. She will have to live with it. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I thought it was interesting. There was a review of the collection, Cheating at Canasta, which said about bravado, only in a Trevor story can you feel regret for the future. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's perfect. I think that's just lovely. (laughs) Well done. Yeah, exactly. So you do, you you feel this regret for something's been taken away from Ashley. Right. And so there's the sadness that it ends on a different level of sadness than one thinks it's going to, you know, because you think the sadness is the boy's death, but Mm -hmm. the sadness is the part of her that seems to die as well. Yeah. And in a sense, we know she's not actually guilty of this crime, but in a sense, Manning and Donovan aren't entirely guilty because they didn't know, you know, he died because he had a weak heart and another boy would have been able to stand up to it. So Trevor, in a way, lets everyone off, except that the lives are ruined. (laughs) Right. And that's very typical of Trevor. I I think that Trevor is unbelievably always generous to all of his characters. I mean, he's never, in, in my estimation, he's never judgmental when he goes to the page about anything. He's just reporting on who we are and what we do. And we know these guys, you know, we've known them or People like them, and we understand that this is what can happen, and and so he makes his story out of it. There's this interesting period of, of sort of limbo where the news comes out and no one goes to the police. Ashling doesn't go to the police, even though she knows right away 
I thought that was interesting as well. It's, it's obviously Francie who, you know, spills the beans. And that makes sense to me that Francie would. I sort of interpreted it as Ashley being kind of frozen at that point, just really almost not being able to believe it and not knowing what to do, which almost makes sense for somebody that young, you know, to be hit with this. And what do you do? You know, obviously you should go to the police, but that moment of being frozen made sense to me psychologically, you know, that she just wouldn't know what to do as she was trying to believe that it had actually happened. And also clinging to the idea that this was an act of retribution for what he had done to Hazel. Exactly. So she's, you know, going to stay out of it for the moment as she tries to sort through it. Yeah. I think she probably suspects she's got it wrong, but doesn't want to be told that. Right. That was what was the most interesting to me was how she she just kept clinging to that idea that this was all about Donovan's sister <laughs> having to go to a shrink. Yeah. Yeah. But she doesn't say it to the police. No. And um, obviously nobody said it to the police. You know, I, I think it shows possibly that Ashling herself doesn't believe it by then. Right. And the fact that she's going to the police also means she's just given up on Manning. And she's doing the right thing. Yes, though it was never going to feel like the right thing I to know, her. I know, I know, I know, exactly. <laughs> and, and now she belongs there. Yeah. And now she's never, never getting to, away from Never that. to leave, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> I mean, I kept, you know, I kept thinking, well, okay, she's just going to stay there for a while. Because in my imagination, I want her to, you know, be able to take off and leave. But, or we know yeah. that she stayed. <laughs> yeah. Belonging where the thing had happened. I find that last line very evocative of Alice Monroe as well. Yes. Um, it feels like a Monroe ending. It does. Yeah, I agree. I've always thought that Alice Monroe and William Trevor, they were like two of my favorite writers, and they have such great authority. I mean, Alice Monroe has very definite authority on the page, and, and William Trevor has a much quieter authority, but he's got it just as much as she does. They're not interested in any sort of sentimentality, even remotely, which is just so great. And they also have that ability to move through time in a sentence. Yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> exactly. To say, and this is how the life ends, <laughs> no, you know, exactly. in one sentence. This is, this is what all, all the decades will bring. Uh, there's something sort of, I don't want to say forceful, because Trevor's not forceful, but there's something absolutely authoritative. Yeah. I think he quietly makes his points. I mean, actually, the, the quietness almost makes the point even louder in a way. Not louder, but it makes it stronger. Yeah. Another thing that's interesting to me is is when Trevor wrote the story, he was, uh, if not 80, close to 80. Yeah, isn't that amazing? And yet he's completely immersed in the in the mind of these teens. I know. I, I, I was thinking about that as well because... Well, his imagination could cast a very wide net. I mean, as we know from all the multitude of characters that he's created through his career, um, his imagination is sort of boundless in a way. And the fact yeah. that he was so much older and could go back with such accuracy, from my point of view, you know, these are, these are real young people. We, we know them. We've seen them. We know them. And we believe them. And he could capture that. Well, thank you so much, Liz. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you very much. 
William Trevor, who died in 2016, was the author of more than three dozen novels and short story collections, including the Whitbread Prize-winning Felicia's Journey, 2009's Love and Summer, and Last Stories, which was published posthumously in 2018. He published 50 stories in The New Yorker between 1977 and 2018. Elizabeth Strout is the author of seven books of fiction, including Amy and Isabel, My Name is Lucy Barton, and Olive Kittredge, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize in 2009. Olive Again, a sequel to Olive Kittredge, was published in 2019. You can download more than 160 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.